Hello and welcome to the Super Jump Podcast. I'm your host, Mitchell Wolf, and I'm here with the editor-in-chief of Super Jump and founder of Super Jump, James Burns. Hey, James, how's it going? Good, good. How are you? I'm pretty great. Just a, just a Saturday afternoon for me and uh, I, I suppose a Sunday morning for you? Yeah, Sunday morning here and we've had this like beautiful transition into spring in Australia, but today it's really, really like dark and windy and nasty looking outside. So I'm glad I'm indoors. This is one of the hottest days in the year for us. So it's crazy that we have that. I mean, that makes sense, obviously, but it's fun. Funny that we had that little reverse. Um, This is the Super Jump podcast. We talk about video games and, you know, we we just have fun talking about video games. We, We can talk about anything we want. But this week we are talking about reinvention when a franchise is reinvented and and it just acts completely different than the uh the franchise that it used to be it's been happening a little bit more often recently than normal um what what do you what do you think about this james this was your idea to to talk about reinvention and i'm very excited to do it uh what what are your initial thoughts on the subject um well, it's interesting because I guess video games in general are just starting to get old enough as a, as a thing, like as a medium, um, yeah. that we can actually start talking about these really long-term franchises and how developers breathe new life into them. Um, and I guess there are probably a couple of main reasons why uh, a franchise would be, you know, completely reinvented from the ground up. Um, one of them definitely we're going to talk about in this show, and that's about, you know, um, moving a franchise, say, from 2D to 3D, which we saw happen in that kind of N64, PS1, Saturn era. Um, but then I think there's just that general, um, I don't know what to call it, there's that thing of, you know, a franchise has been around for a long time. It starts to become a little bit stale. Um, yeah. Maybe there uh, are... It's, it's tired. Yeah. And, and maybe it's starting to get slightly worse reviews or it's getting a lot of feedback from the community that sort of say, okay, you know, it's time to make a big change here. Um, sure. And they're the ones that kind of interest me the most because... Um, Sometimes they can be really, really mega successful, and sometimes they just completely fall flat. Right, and I think one of the the more quintessential examples of this, and one that's very recent, is Breath of the Wild. And let's do a good job this episode. Maybe this episode we won't talk about Breath of the Wild that much. <laughs> we have <laughs> we have a, a list of other examples that we can talk about later. Um, and maybe it'll be like a little self-challenge for us to not necessarily talk about Breath of the Wild that much. Uh, despite it being pretty much this, you know, the Ocarina of Time formula that every 3D Zelda game, even Skyward Sword, even though that's kind of a weird one, uh, uh, follows that, that formula pretty closely. And then suddenly it was, it was thrown out the window, just entirely gone. Um, so... When do you think it's a good time to look into reinventing a game franchise? Uh, what what's the signs? If you were <laughs> if you were a producer at at some big studio, a AAA studio, uh, when, when where's the line between? Yeah, maybe it doesn't work as well as it used to, but you know it's it's tradition, and the thing the way we've been making our games needs to hold that tradition at least a little bit, and well, the tradition kind of sucks now, so maybe we should we should uh, look into this further. Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I guess I'm a little bit. I'm kind of. I think I'm going to go the Seinfeld way, and and what I mean is like, um, to me, it's a similar question to when you sort of say, when are we going to end the run of a really popular TV show? Um, you could you could wait until it's it's kind of been hanging around at the party too long and people are waiting for it to leave yeah. um you know or you could sort of say right it's it's had a really good run it's been around for a long time 
um, and we're going to kind of go out on a high a little bit. And and I think for me, it's a bit the same with games. Like there are probably some people that would argue that Zelda was starting to get a bit tired. I think in some ways it was, but you know, if you look at um, if you just start from Ocarina of Time and you look at Majora's Mask and you look at um, even Wind Waker, I think Nintendo were always kind of pushing at the boundaries in terms of that franchise. Like, how can we push it in new directions? Um, Breath of the Wild kind of feels like a complete wholesale reset of the whole thing. Um but I, I, I think it was probably getting a bit stale, but I don't think Nintendo was in a position where it was like, oh my God, we have to save the Zelda franchise. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, uh, Zelda would have been fine mostly. I don't think Skyward, Soul, uh, Skyward Sword sold nearly as much as they wanted it to, but mm. it also didn't do too badly, I'm guessing. Um, so they they weren't in any financial uh like they they weren't being pressured financially and i i think if you look at all of the examples that we have i don't think financial pressure was ever really the uh the push here yeah. it's either technologically or create uh creatively which is good because when that is the reason that things are changing that's usually more thought out <laughs> yeah. than uh if you're just doing it for the money and i i could have i could probably think of some other games that were changed explicitly because of of money making tactics you know any anything that used to belong in a franchise that didn't have micro transactions and now does is that thing and uh you know maybe <laughs> maybe there's good examples of that but i think on the whole we we can agree that that's usually not great mm. um so this this is maybe a big question, maybe a little loaded. How often do you think it pays off? If you were to put a success rate on this kind of thing, how often do you think this is good? A, a franchise reinvention. Um. Well, go. I was thinking about that question because I knew, like, coming into this discussion, I thought, oh, I probably should think of a, a an example that's really bad. Um, mm-hmm. And I think. The problem for me is I'm, I've got a lot of confirmation bias on this because the examples that come to mind straight away are the ones where it was successful and it was a pleasant surprise. They're the, they're my favorites, especially where it was a really pleasant surprise. Um, but I can think of some bad ones as, as always. (laughs) That's, that's what our teamwork is. (laughs) Well, the, I, I'm going to sound a li- little bit like a broken record, but the example for me of the worst one I can think of personally is Sonic. Um, sure. And just without kind of going back into our last episode too much, the, the bottom line for me there is just, uh, it wasn't just a question of reinvention. It was a question of constant, constant reinvention all the time and reinventing you know, too quickly and maybe not pausing to really think about what they wanted that franchise to be. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it was, it's almost like that that equivalent of you just throw enough stuff at the wall and maybe something will stick. Um, that's how it felt anyway for me. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see a franchise as big as Sonic be as willing to take pretty much every risk (laughs) that sonic does which is kind of refreshing in a way because um like call of duty is not going to do that they they made a call of duty that takes place in space Mm. and i don't even think that's that big of a risk um and yeah but every sonic game man is is crazy (laughs) like it make this one character that you've known forever into a werewolf and sega's like yeah fine we'll do that for sure don't worry about it (laughs) Uh, we can just make another one. It's super easy. Games are super easy for <laughs> Sega, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, Sonic. Sonic's a good example. I I would even say that Sonic Mania, despite being a return to form, is a little bit of a reinvention in terms of like what they've been doing with Sonic. Mm. Um, 
recently. Uh, reinvention is a very vague word, and I feel like I've used it 50 times already, and over the course of the podcast, I'm going to be using it about a hundred more times. So just, <laughs> if if you're annoyed by it as much as I am annoyed by saying it, get ready. <laughs> Brace um, yourselves. James, you brought an example, you brought two examples, but first let's talk about Doom. Yeah, um, now I'm, I'm going to go into this just saying right away that um i'm not the world's biggest doom expert in general um doom is a is an interesting one for me because um if i kind of stretch my mind back to when doom and doom 2 were new um that was at a point uh, like i would have been kind of moving between um primary school or elementary school and high school and I like we got our first PC in our family um, when I was probably somewhere in early high school. Um, so I had a lot of friends that had PCs well before me, and I'd go over to their house. And the number one game that you would fire up every single time was Doom. Right. Um, and we also got to the point, and somehow um, we managed to do this. We got away with this. There were a few PCs at school that had Doom on them as well. And um, some kids actually found a way of playing Doom, like multiplayer Doom in class. Um, wow. I don't know if the teachers noticed or not, but that was like a thing back then. <laughs> um, so I have a lot of really fond memories of Doom, even though I, I definitely wouldn't say I have a lot of expertise on sort of Doom 1 and 2. Um, mm-hmm. But I thought Doom was a really fascinating one because if you think about how huge and influential and successful Doom 1 and 2 were, um, and then you think about like Doom 3, um, id Software, I think, probably could have just said, we're going to make a Doom 3 that's, you know, exactly the same pretty much as Doom 2 but with much better graphics and sound and all the rest of it and being perfectly fine and perfectly successful um, and what they did instead was they created this really really interesting like first person survival horror uh, very kind of plot heavy experience as well with Doom 3 mm-hmm. um and, you know, like all kind of new id games at the time, Doom 3 was a really, it was a really big tech showcase. I think it used the, the id tech 4 engine. Um, so it was kind of like, like I remember when they first showed video of that game, it was, it was just this absolutely incredible, you know, it, it, it felt completely next gen. There had been nothing else like it in terms of graphics. Um, so Doom 3 is the reinvention you're talking about. I was assuming you were going to talk about <laughs> Doom 2016. Well, yeah, they they both are. Um, but Doom 3 oh, okay. is a really fascinating one to me, and I, I actually just went back to it not that long ago. I played it a little bit at the time, but I didn't have a computer that could run it, um, and now I do. So I went back and, you know, played it on Mac settings and all the rest of it, and I have to admit... Uh, I can't get very far before I get too freaked out and have to stop. (laughs) (laughs) I need to sit with a friend, I think is what I'm saying. (laughs) Um, But I'm not, I'm not very good at horror games either. I, uh, something about being in being responsible for a character's survivals, just so much scarier than a scary movie. Yeah, and and Doom 3 is just so different to the first two games. It's it's this completely new thing. Um, And I remember some people at the time, some fans at the time being, I don't know if I'd say upset, but kind of being a bit uncomfortable with the change. Um, Sure. But it, it, critically, it did very well. Um, and apparently it's the highest selling, um, id software game to date. It sold about, it sold over three and a half million copies, 
So clearly they did something right. Um, but I thought that was really interesting. And it was, it's also interesting because they had this massive success with Doom 3 under mm-hmm. this kind of new formula. And then Doom 2016 didn't revisit that at all. So it's this once off, this complete once off. Um, and to me, that's yeah. like the ultimate, it's kind of the ultimate statement of confidence, you know, that they don't, they don't seem to have felt any pressure to build a particular formula and stick with it. They've been really free to just experiment. Yeah, Doom 2016. Um, I'm also not very familiar with the original Doom games, but from everything I've heard about it is that Doom 2016 is much more like Doom 1 and maybe Doom 2, right? Yeah. In terms of just how it plays. Yeah. Um, I wrote an article ages ago on Super Jump called, I think it was called Highway to Hell, and it was about Doom 2016 and just it wasn't really a review, but it was just sort of saying that this is a complete shock and surprise considering how much turbulence this game had had been through i mean it started as doom 4 Uh, i can't remember the year they started development but it was a long time ago i think it was announced in like 2008 or 9 um and it, it went through such a fraught period almost like duke nukem forever but not quite so extreme um and then to actually to actually play it and find not only is it an amazing game on its own terms, but it's an amazing Doom game. Um, and it feels like, to me, I felt straight away like I was going back to Doom 1 and 2. Like they they really captured the spirit of the first two games and the stuff they added to it. Uh, and I think it's called, there's a mechanic called the Glory Kill. I think that's what it's called. Um, the way that actually functions in the game is is amazing. Um, they they just did such an incredible job. Now, uh, some something else that I've heard about Doom that I can't personally verify because of my lack of experience is that Doom twenty sixteen feels very much like Doom one felt, but upon replaying Doom one, one might find that. Doom 1 is very slow because games just were slow. And Doom 2016 is an incredibly fast-paced action shooter. Um, I think that's great because that proves that the developers weren't actually taking how Doom was. Mm. Which which is the trap that I think people get caught in a lot Mm. with any creative works that are uh, additions onto previous intellectual properties. You're not actually taking how it was. You're taking how it felt and recreating that in a way that works again in a modern era, yeah. uh, in a modern era with modern technology. Yeah, I think uh, you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly right. They were capturing how it felt at the time, um, which is really incredible. We kind of talked about that feeling a little bit on our uh, remix and remasters episode. But when you uh, reinvent a a franchise, it's still incredibly important to make sure that even if you're not doing the same stuff anymore, you're doing them to the same ends. Mm. And that's why Doom 2016 is still a Doom game rather than just Hellgun 3000 or whatever you want to call it instead of Doom. Um, You want to talk about a series that doesn't do that well. Let's talk about Paper Mario. Uh, Paper Mario, the original Paper Mario, and Paper Mario The Thousand Year Door for the N64 and GameCube, respectively, are two of my favorite RPGs. I think they're extremely, uh, clever. They're very well written. Mm. The, the battle mechanics, even though they're pretty, like, standard JRPG on the surface, the the uh, addition of timing moves and having a little bit of a a rhythm element to the battle makes them feel much more uh, action-y and and more like Mario, which is cool because you're you're, you're taking from that history. 
they reinvented the Paper Mario series, and since Paper Mario The Thousand Year Door, there's never been another Paper Mario game that actually feels that way, mm. despite doing some seemingly similar things. So it's kind of the opposite mm. of Doom in that regard. Uh, first, they tried Super Paper Mario, which I was actually fine with. Uh, they turned it into a platformer slash RPG, yeah. which is fine. Uh, it's not the same thing that everyone loved and wanted more of, but, uh, you know, we got we got two of those already, so I think that's fine. But then Paper Mario Sticker Star for 3DS came out, and Paper Mario Color Splash for the Wii U came out, and both of those were so nothing... <laughs> they were so, like, nothing that we liked from the original Paper Mario games. Um, the battle system was just made more convoluted, and the rhythm aspect of it was taken out. And, like, ev even just jumping on an enemy, which used to be your, your regular free move, like, you don't need to pay any special points or whatever in order to use it, was now something that you had to spend a card on. And that just slowed the game down immensely. And apparently, and this may be sacrilegious, this may not be exactly the truth but apparently Miyamoto stepped in and he said well you know all those like fun new characters that the original two Paper Mario games had and uh, you know how they were very well written and they were just super charming and new let's make a Paper Mario game where there are no new characters like let's see let's see you do it and he posed it to the development team as a challenge and because he's Miyamoto, they actually did it. Um, every every character in Color Splash is a toad. Like, every single one is a toad. And they all act like toads act. It's And, and, and what's frustrating is that it's still well-written. Like, the, the things that these toads are saying, uh, and I think this is mostly due to uh, Treehouse being very good localizers. Uh, it's still clever, still cool. Uh, it doesn't feel anything like those old games. All of the mystique and the charm is taken out, and there's, it. it I, I think it was a poor, a poor choice at reinventing a franchise because it doesn't. It does some of the same stuff that the original games did, but it does not do them to the same ends. Mm. What, what what do you think about that, James? Uh, are are you familiar with the Paper Mario franchise? Yeah, I played, I played I played the first two RPGs. Um, I played Super Paper Mario as well, but I think that's where I stopped. So I I'd heard about uh, Sticker Star, and I I'd, I'd heard about some of those gripes, but I didn't really like. I don't have direct experience with them. Um, I was looking at getting Color Splash just because I saw that, you know, that video that was going around on YouTube about um, oh, the one where, like, you're in the kitchen and you're using the lemons as a weapon. Oh, yeah. And it looks, like, stunningly beautiful. <laughs> that it's, was, it's, that it was looks the one very thing good. that was going to get me to buy it. <laughs> it looks very good. I was going to buy it for the lemon attack, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to spam that over and over again. Um, but then, yeah, I started reading more about it and the, the battle mechanics changes, I, I can't really comment on cause I haven't played it, but the whole thing about all the, all the other characters being toads, I found that really, really weird because like you're saying, the first couple of games in the series, I really, really love the writing. I love the characters. There was so much variety in there. They kind of really played with the character designs and did some really fun and kind of surprising stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So to, to make it more bland deliberately seems like a really weird decision to me. Yeah, I found that in general in modern Mario games, um, and, and and some of these break the trend. Like Odyssey looks like it's absolutely going to break this trend. Yeah. But the the main trend I'm seeing is that it's less iterative than other maybe older Mario games up to about the end of the GameCube era. Now it's just more like 
all these elements in the Mario universe that you know, we're going to throw them together in like a new in a new order mm-hmm. or a new combination, um, or or like with a new perspective on it. And that's they they seem very happy with that. But um, like Paper Mario, the Thousand Year Door, I'm actually replaying at the moment, which is why I, I I'm thinking about it now. It, they added an entire multiple entire races of new Mario characters, like, from the ground up, not the same as anything you've ever seen before. Yeah. Um, and, and new places to go, and, and new things to see in that um, don't just challenge what you think you know about the Mario universe, they kind of add to it. They're iterative. Mm. And, and, and Mario Sunshine was like this, too. Um... You know, Isle Delfino has a ton of new Mario characters, uh, like like the Piantas, those guys with the palm tree heads. Yeah. And then they kind of just stopped doing that for a little bit. Odyssey makes me happy that they're going back to that, but that's a little bit off the plot of this episode, James. Uh, you wanted to also talk about Resident Evil, which is a series that I've had almost no experience with. <laughs> well, so I should probably ask you, have you... What is your experience like? Have you have you played any of the games? I've played remake. Yep. Uh, for the GameCube. Mm-hmm. I've played Resident Evil Four. Okay. Also for the GameCube. Um, yep. That is pretty much my experience. I played a little bit of Seven at a friend's house, yep. and that's it. Well, that's that's pretty good actually, because that gives you you you've kind of played the game at those major reinvention points which kind of works pretty well um and i mean i was obsessed with resident evil on playstation the original kind of like the first three games which i thought were incredible and which i occasionally played may have asked a friend to come over and play them so i could watch uh (laughs) um so my experience wasn't always completely hands-on, but anyway. Um, but the first, you know, like the first three games in particular had this very, very specific formula where you had these pre-rendered backgrounds and you had these static camera angles, which I think Capcom kind of argued that they did that um, partly to enhance the the horror, which, which I think yeah. that is true i think that worked um but by the time they got to uh code veronica on dreamcast which i think that came after resident evil 3 it started to feel really really stale um and i i actually think code veronica felt stale for other reasons but that's a rabbit hole I won't go down completely here. Cause is could... Code Veronica in the same style as 1, 2, and 3? With that that gameplay mechanic style? Um, it's, it's, in that, it's got that same gameplay mechanic style, but the difference was the backgrounds were all um, real-time. They weren't pre-rendered, but you still had the fixed camera oh, angles. Okay. The thing about Code Veronica was it, it looked amazing because it was on Dreamcast, so it was just way better looking and it still looks great now actually it was way better looking than the first three games on playstation but um i i remember kind of feeling bored by it because the mechanics hadn't changed and the actual setting of code veronica is sort of um just i just didn't care it was really sort of bland and gray and you know it wasn't as interesting i didn't think as the first three games um, so I think by that point in time, a lot of fans, you know, there are obviously still a lot of people who love Resident Evil, but I think a lot of fans were kind of asking Capcom to do something different and Resident Evil 4 was kind of the, the big reinvention of the whole franchise. And they were actually working on, um, uh, on a very different Resident Evil 4 originally. There is, you can still see some screenshots online. Um, I'm not sure if they were going with the fixed camera angles or the over-the-shoulder perspective, but the original kind of build of Resident Evil 4 they were working on had, uh, from memory, it showed Leon 
in this um, kind of big mansion at night with these massive kind of curtains billowing around in the breeze like the windows were open and um, Hmm. it looked quite beautiful but at some point they decided to completely pivot and basically scrap that project. There's a lot of those GameCube PS2 era (laughs) demos that never came to light in the same way you imagined them and I think it's just because they thought they had way more technology than they did. Yeah, they, think, they thought they were going to be able to do all these crazy things yeah. and then none of it rendered properly or whatever. I think that's true. And I think they, I think with Resident Evil 4, they were originally planning to put it on PS2 and then they made the decision to to make it, at least for a little while, to make it GameCube exclusive. Um, mm-hmm. Resident Evil 4, to me, as a fan of the franchise, was really mind-blowing because it kind of addressed a lot of the issues I was starting to have with the series. Um, It was a lot more fast-paced. You didn't have the the really awful kind of tank controls and um, the the game was... How do I explain it? I think there was really nothing else like it up until that point. So if you think about the opening of Resident Evil 4 when you go into that first village... And you're kind of trapped in the village with all the villagers coming at you from every angle. It had this really frantic feeling that was very, very different. Um, the kind of horror they were trying to generate, I guess, um, wasn't that slow paced jump scare type of horror. It was more right, a feeling yeah. of panic. I think they wanted to really make you panic. Um, and they definitely did that to me. Um, and then, you had Resident Evil 5, which was okay. That was kind of similar formula to 4, um, but it had more of a co-op design. Um, it's definitely... From what I understand, 5 and 6 are a lot more action-y. They're a lot more action-y. 5, five has a bit more action than 4, um, but 5 is still reasonably good, especially if you play it with two people. If you play it on your own... You'll just want to kill your AI partner because the game um, ties you together very, very tightly. You know, every time you're you're traversing a certain area in the environment, um, you you need to frequently help each other, like boost each other up or open a door together or something like that. And trying to do that with an AI partner, I just found really infuriating. It didn't work for me. Um, but if you play, co-op, I feel like having a constant companion in a horror game is, yeah, like principally <laughs> less scary. Yeah, it just it just doesn't work at all. Um, because when you play co-op as well, you can actually you can be a lot more tactical. You know, you can deliberately split up so like one of you can get the attention of an enemy, have it run after you, while the other one, you know, sets up a trap or whatever. It's it's a lot more fun to communicate with another person and play it that way. And I think that's the way they kind of intended it to be. Um, I, I actually just recently got Resident Evil 6. I had avoided it for years. Um, my sister and I play online games now and then, and we're always looking for something to play that's co-op. And... She's like, oh, you know, Resident Evil 6 is um, is on sale. Let's get it. You know, if it's crap, that's okay. We haven't wasted much money. And we started playing it. And I think about five or ten minutes in, I'm just, I think I just said, this is shit. I just, <laughs> like, I, I was just sitting there whinging, just like, I can't do this. This is so painful. And I think we got like 30 minutes in and I it's I rarely do this. We got 30 minutes in and I'm like, nah, I, I can't. This this just hurts too much. I have to stop. I'm putting the controller down. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> I'm gonna delete this game. Um it was just a mess. A complete mess. Um very, very action heavy, very like macho action movie feeling which i which already kind of turns me off a little bit anyway you know it's got that feeling of like it's trying way too hard but the actual um 
the actual quality of the game itself, like um, th little things like collision detection and controls felt to me really sloppy in Resident Evil 6, like really half-baked. And mm -hmm. so aside from anything else, I was just getting annoyed with the actual moment-to-moment -moment gameplay. I just didn't like it. It felt really kind of loose and rushed and and poor. Um, and this would maybe be an example of when a reinvention um, goes more the Paper Mario route than the Doom route. Yeah. And starts doing some of the same stuff as earlier entries in the series, but to different ends. And because of that, it seems to have failed. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, it, it just felt very... It, it has this very, very tightly linear way of shuffling you from objective to objective. And the objectives just don't feel meaningful or really relevant to the plot or... It, it just feels like you're doing things by rote. You know, you're just moving from place to place. Um, you're having these awkward encounters with zombies that you can see what they were going for. Like they, they would set up a scenario that on paper sounds really cool, but to play it, it just feels like this really messy, poorly implemented experience. And you're just waiting for it to be over, basically, uh, which is, really not good for any video game um and then yeah that's not a great <laughs> that's not a great feeling just uh just to wait for it to be over yeah like you know it should be this really really awesome experience but you're just sitting there going this has been this segment's been going for way too long if it doesn't end soon i'm just going to turn it off um that's really not good um no and then I guess we get to Resident Evil 7, uh, which you mentioned you'd played, or you played a little bit? Yeah, I, I've, well, I, I observed it being played for a little bit. Yep. So very, very <laughs> not much at all. Yeah. So. It, it seems good. Yeah, it's, um, and I'm, I'm going to just put out a general spoiler warning here before I say anything else. Because this may be considered a spoiler depending on how sensitive you are to spoilers. But um, I really, really loved Resident Evil 7 up until the point where you kind of formally leave the house. Mm -hmm. So the game to me is kind of in two parts. There's the first two thirds or so you're in the house, you're in the Baker mansion. And then the last... Um, you know, the, the last little part of the game, you're in this kind of derelict ship. Like you, you completely, you leave the house, but you don't only leave the house in terms of geography. It feels like the whole game changes. Um, and in some ways it goes back to, in some ways it falls back on some kind of older Resident Evil tropes that don't really work. I think that don't really work in that context. Um, I almost wish the game had been shorter and had just ended at the house. Um, even if that meant it was significantly shorter, I think it would have been significantly better. Um, hmm. because the way they, the way they set the house up in, in terms of Yes, there are some enemies that you encounter, but not you don't really encounter enemies very often. It's the enemies you're encountering are the actual, you know, family members themselves. And what I find really interesting is you kind of you move through the house in these stages. So like, you know, stage 1 is where the father is is hunting you and you know, you keep encountering him and, of course, eventually you have to defeat him. But then you kind of move on to the next stage where you're encountering the wife. And that's the, the gameplay around that is a little bit different. It's a little bit more kind of stealthy. You know, she's walking around with the lantern and you've got to hide in the dark and you there's really no way that you can directly face her, at least until you kind of fight her as a boss. Um and then the, I think 
then you've got the sun and the sun, the whole gameplay experience with the sun is different again. It's like you've gone into a Saw movie where you're kind of, mm. you're trying to evade all these traps that he set up. Um, so I think the way they did that is really, really smart and works really, really well. It's just, it just falls apart a little bit after that, unfortunately. So it seems really good at its own thing, except the part where you leave the house, uh, apparently, but it really does not seem like a Resident Evil, Evil game. Mm. It, nothing about this seems familiar to the rest of this series at all. Yeah, it's... It's, I don't know how intentional this was, but to me, it, it feels a little bit like they've been inspired by PT um, on PS4. Is that? Did you ever play PT? Yeah, I, I definitely played PT. I played a lot of. I played all the way through PT a number of times with my roommates, and we <laughs> uh, we were scared a lot of it. <laughs> we were scared by PT a lot. Um, before we talk about that for a second. Um, did you play Resident Evil 4 on on uh, PSVR? Sorry, not 4, 7. Did you play it on a PSVR or just uh, just regularly? I So I played through the whole game just regular and then I played just a little bit, a little bit in VR. Um, my, my two sisters played in VR a little bit further than I did. Like, I don't know, maybe, maybe the first hour to an hour and a half um and they just sort of said i think they enjoyed it but they couldn't they found it a bit too awkward and a bit too kind of sickening to play for too long i've been hearing that a lot with this game specifically even with people that uh don't really have an issue with vr they do have an issue with resident evil 7 yeah, I think, like, if you're just walking around in the world, so, like, if you're if you're walking around in the house and solving puzzles and stuff, the VR's pretty okay. But if you think about those moments where, like, um, you know, the, the father is chasing you around the house and you have to hide and you kind of have to look around and move a little bit more quickly, I think that's where the VR starts to become, starts to get in the way. Yeah. I um I I want to talk more about PT. Now, PT is is interesting uh for those who don't know, PT stands for playable trailer and or teaser. Tra- teaser or trailer. I I actually don't remember which one it is, but um it was meant to be the playable trailer for Silent Hills, which is a game in the Silent Hill franchise. That never came out because Konami uh, canceled a lot of projects at once. Once they uh, they got rid of Kojima and started to move more toward gambling machines for Japan. Um, but this is a really interesting case because it really is nothing like Silent Hill. Mm. Um, it's it's so somber and not story based, and th- there's there's lore in in the atmosphere, but not necessarily in in the direct progression that you go through in in PT. Um, and, and I think I think of PT as a reinvention of the Silent Hills franchise, or Silent Hill franchise, uh, much of the same way I think of the recent Prey game. Mm. In that it really is just a name that they've kept on. Um, and everything else about the game seems entirely new. Um, it, it's to the point where I'm not even sure if I would call it a reinvention of the franchise as much as I would just say it's a game that doesn't seem like it is in that franchise and somehow is. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Um, were you a big Silent Hill fan? Um, I I played. I only played the first two. Um, I loved Silent Hill two. That's still one of my favorite. I'd I'd say it's probably my favorite horror game. Um, I think Silent Hill two is really 
a masterpiece. Um, I never played three or four, and I know there were a number of kind of spin-off titles, but I never played those. I, but I remember playing PT, being terrified by PT, and and also kind of awed by how fantastic it was, and how much they did in that very very small space. And I remember thinking, can you imagine playing like a whole Silent Hill game set in Silent Hill in first person with that level of intensity? (laughs) Apparently Konami could not imagine it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it it had the potential to be absolutely groundbreaking. Oh, yeah. But I think as as a player, I had that weird feeling of on the one hand i couldn't wait to see what it was like but on the other hand i thought how the hell am i going to get through like 20 or 30 hours of this <laughs> this is just so taxing psychologically yeah uh, yeah absolutely um this ended up being a little more of a horror game discussion uh <laughs> podcast <laughs> than a franchise reinvention podcast i'm not even sure if uh we want to talk about our last point. Uh, no, we're doing it. I, I've committed. Um, our our last point that we wanted to talk about before we uh, before we closed up the episode is the era of reinvention, of uh, where I've I've pinpointed this as being around the launch of the N sixty four, but not only having to do with the N sixty four, the PlayStation one as well. There were many uh, NES arcade genesis and super nintendo franchises that uh, still needed to exist they still kept going but they could not exist in the way they previously had because the ps1 and the n64 were at least by the time of 2000 or sorry not 2000 uh 1997 or so they were primarily 3d machines Mm. And all those other things I talked about were primarily not 3D machines. So everything had to change. Uh, probably the most famous uh, game franchise reinvention of all time, Super Mario 64, happened around this time. Ocarina of Time did. Uh, Metal Gear Solid. People forget about this, but there were other Metal Gear games before <laughs> that. Um, this this all happened at once. Uh you you were actively playing games at this time and i wasn't i was uh, i was starting to play games at this time so how <laughs> how did it feel like seeing these these kinds of franchises change before your eyes like how how did that sit with you um was it exciting or or were you maybe like n- nostalgic for the old ways at that time um, it was the most exciting time that I've ever experienced in terms of <laughs> a hobby. <laughs> like people get nostalgic now, but I remember at that time, um, and I'm trying to be specific, like I'd, I'd had a Super Nintendo, I'd had a, a Mega Drive, I was, you know, had a ton of games on those platforms. And the, I'm not sure what the first console was that I actually saw in the flesh from that generation. Probably, probably the Saturn, I think. Um, and we had some, we had some, um, like gaming kind of rental places here, you know, like blockbusters and stuff where you could rent the console as well as the games. And. I remember I went to a friend's house and he'd he he had all all these kids had come over and he rented a a Saturn with knights and he had the 3D control pad and that was like and it sounds so silly to say it now because it just looks like it it kind of looks like a mess now but I I will never forget that night when he first turned on that Saturn and knights came up on the screen the I can't think of any analogy that that explains how blown our minds were. Like 
The only thing I can remotely imagine is it must have been like when people went from black and white television to color. Yeah. It's it's just um or maybe your very first VR experience. It's it's that it's like this whole other order of magnitude uh bigger in terms of change than what you've seen before. So um at that point in time, at least for us, like for my group of friends, there was zero nostalgia. It was like, no, no, we, our job is just, We want that new, new. We want new, <laughs> we, we new. Want How do now. we convince our parents to buy these ridiculously expensive consoles? Because like the Saturn was like eight or $900 when it came out here. I mean, it was a Whoa, high Whoa, seriously? High oh, Australia. Yeah, that makes more sense. Pardon? I, I well that that struck me as incredibly high, but then I remembered that you're Australian, and that kind of happens all the time over there. Yeah, well, and it's um, I don't know what the exchange rate would have been then, but um, still high, still but... high. <laughs> but so these were not like these certainly at our age anyway at that time. Like it, they didn't feel like toys. They felt like these really high end pieces of equipment. Um, but I think. I think the moment that really that I that I think I nearly had a heart attack was I'd been following Super Mario 64 in various game magazines for months and months before it came out and to the point where I was obsessed like I was as a kid I was like cutting out the screenshots and sticking them in this little book and like I was actually <laughs> charting the course of this game and I just sit there and and pour over the screenshots, um, because I just couldn't believe it. The idea of Mario in three D was just like I might as well go to Mars, you know. It just yeah. doesn't seem realistic at all. And then, um, I remember going to buy a Nintendo sixty four. My dad took me. There was this huge video game store that's, uh, it's it's gone now. It was around here from like the seventies this massive, massive game store. And um, they had this huge Nintendo 64 launch celebration thing. And they had massive screens everywhere kind of pouring out into the, um, pouring outside the store itself. These massive screens with Super Mario 64 on it. And mm -hmm. I just, I, I'll, I will never ever forget seeing it in motion in person for the first time. And as I get older, like I'm still excited about games, but I don't think anything will ever match that experience. Is, yeah, that's, I, I can only imagine how it would have been to go from like Yoshi's Island to Super Mario 64. Um, Super Mario 64 was kind of like the, the, the birth of me playing games seriously, so I can't exactly put myself backward from that. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's that's probably the biggest reinvention of a game franchise of all time. Mario, that was the mainline Mario from there on forward until even now. Um, and it was nothing like Mario before that. Mm. Um, that, yeah, that's that's... That's a big one. That's a big one. Um, well, James, it's been a good episode. I've had a lot of time, uh, have, had a lot of fun talking to you this time about video game reinvention. Uh, we have an email address, everyone. It is podcast at superjump.online. If you want to say hi, send feedback, um, send a question, anything that can be done at podcast at superjump.online line uh if you get a chance please review us on itunes we would love to hear uh your input and especially if it's positive that helps us out so much it the amount that we rise in rankings because of things like you reviewing us on itunes or liking our medium posts uh that you can find at superjump.online it's so huge. You would not believe how important you as one person, not even like a collection of yous, just one you uh, can make. You can make a huge difference. We have some after school activities. This is the part of the show where we talk about extracurricular stuff you can engage with. 
um, that aren't Super Jump things. So, James, why don't you go first? Yeah, I wanted to mention a, a podcast that's reasonably new. Um, they did their their first major episode. Well, they did their first major episode um, back in May, but they've only got a few episodes online at the moment. Um, it's called Games UX, and uh, it's hosted by Charlie Dietz, who, um, who actually submitted... Um, he published a couple of articles with us a while ago. Um, oh, cool. One of them was on um, the user experience or the user interface in Breath of the Wild. Um, and there Very was another cool. one he did around the Switch user experience as well. Um, he His background is as a UX or user experience designer, um, and he was actually the, um, I, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but he was the lead um, UX designer at Facebook in his last job, um, and he's now the wow. head of UX design at WhatsApp. Um, so he's, he's really, really experienced in terms of understanding, you know, how you design an experience for a person, how you design the best kind of UI um, for particular scenarios. And basically what he does in the podcast is he, he'll take something like the Switch, uh, he'll have a guest on who's also a designer, and they'll kind of talk through like, you know, how that UI was actually designed, uh, what are the things that work, what are the things that don't work. It's really, really fascinating. And, and even if you go into it knowing nothing about user experience design or product design, um, it's a really friendly podcast and it's really explained in such a way that you can follow along. Um, it, it gets you to, to look at things with a completely different lens. So you'll go back to your switch after that episode. And you'll have a totally different appreciation for all the little things in terms of how it's designed. So that's a really good one. Wow, that's that sounds so interesting. Uh, I I went to college for that kind of my my uh, degree was in human computer interaction. I should definitely check out Games UX. Yeah, very excited to see that. Um, my extracurricular activity this week is a game called Thimbleweed Park. Um, it's designed by Ron Gilbert, who, if you're a fan of uh, 90s and early 2000s point-and-click adventure games, you will know Ron Gilbert. You'll know who that is, and he, he's everywhere. Uh, this game kind of blew me away a little bit. Uh, very, very cool adventure game. Um it, it, it's it's a bit of a successor, a spiritual successor to um, Monkey the Monkey Island series. You ever play Monkey Island? I did. Yep. Yeah, it's a little bit in that vein. Uh, it's on PS4. It's on the Nintendo Switch. It's on um, I, I think just on computer and Xbox. I think it's on everything. Mm. Um, and if it's not on one of those now, it's on one of those soon. So check that out. Um, pretty good. I I think it's a good game. I I don't want to go into it too much because it could sound like a games review, and I would have to put it like more time into thinking about it in order to really justify it sounding like that. But in general, something that is definitely definitely worth checking out. Um, yeah. So remember, review us on iTunes if you could. That'd be fantastic. Um, if you are not currently subscribed to us on iTunes, that also helps. Um, unless you use a different thing like Pocket Casts for Android, do you use that one, right, James? I do. It's it's a really good yeah. app. So if you're on if you're on Android, I really recommend Pocket Casts. It's really good. Um, and again, anything that you want to send at us or our way, you can send it to podcast at superjump online. Thank you. Um, we'll have to see you again in two weeks that is our usual recording we've actually recorded every two weeks pretty regularly now but now the release schedule is finally catching us up to our uh, recording schedule so it will actually be every two weeks every other wednesday um if, if i get the timing right this should go up on 
September the 6th, so the one after this will be on September the 20th. Okay, thank you very much. Stay super. We'll jump at you next time. I messed that one up so bad. <laughs> <laughs> Say, stay 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 stay